0: Thank you very much, Joseph, and thank you, New York Insight, for making this possible. Likewise, uh, Tricycle Magazine, which has unstintingly supported my work since its inception, and I'm very glad to be here with you. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, the writing of this book and interweave with that the uh, readings that I've selected uh, from it itself. You'll have an opportunity after um, I've finished speaking to uh, purchase a copy, if you so wish. Joseph, as um, many people, um, has made the slight mistake of thinking the book is called Confessions Of a Buddhist atheist. And in fact, that's how it started out life, as um, my proposal that I put together uh, some three or four years ago now, in conjunction with my agent, Anne Edelstein, who will appear later in the evening, I think. So thank you, Anne. We put together a proposal, and for the first time ever, I uh, started this project with a title, and then proceeded to write the book. Um, in every other instance, I've written the book, and only once the book had been written was I able to arrive at a title. And the only change I made was to drop the final S. And the reason I did that was because there are too many books I've noticed on the market these days, which are Confessions of a Teenage Crackhead or Confessions <laughs> of a... and the Uh, The suggestion being that the book will be a lurid account of one's misdeeds. Now, there is some of that. (laughs) But that's not the purpose of the book. And I use the word confession in the sense of a a confession of faith. Which might sound a little bit anomalous when... I'm describing myself also as as an atheist. But to me, this is an important point. Um, This is a confession of what I believe, a a confession of what really matters to me most, an attempt uh, to be as honest and as truthful as I can, both to myself and to whoever happens to pick up the book. it's a a sort of, it's, 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 it's a revealing of myself. Now, I know that in Buddhist circles, there's often a considerable and very often entirely justified suspicion about talking about oneself all the time, me. And I'm aware of that. And I hope I don't fall too deeply into the perilous trap of egotistic self-regard. But um, that's a risk that one takes when one uh, chooses to write in this vein. In some ways, um, I've had the idea of writing this book for many, many years. And I'm sure I'm not alone amongst uh, people who, in some ways, in our own internal monologue, in our own reflections about our lives, are, as it were, silently and non-explicitly uh, writing and rewriting and editing and censoring our own story. In many ways, that's what constitutes what I am. And in this sense, I really do not feel there's any contradiction whatsoever between the Buddhist Suspicion, or in some traditions an outright negation of the idea of self or the idea of I with um, the notion of self, the notion of I as a process, as a story, as a narrative. And I feel that the, 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 the meaning of anatta, of not-self, uh, I don't actually think no-self is even an accurate translation, but not-self, that the body is not-self, the feelings, perceptions, impulses, inclinations, consciousness, these are not me. In such a statement, and that is exactly how the Buddha presents it in the the lakana Sutta, the discourse on the characteristics of not-self, the second sermon delivered at the Deer Park, after the sutta of turning the wheel of Dhamma, that uh, the Buddha is not denying that there is a self. In fact, I think such a denial is actually meaningless. Uh, I cannot understand what that can mean. When When I hear people say, I had an experience in meditation in which I was just not there anymore, I don't quite know what they're talking about, because I cannot understand how uh, who could have had that experience. Um, There is, I think, inevitably in our human condition uh, a self-reflexive awareness that whatever happens to us, whatever we do, becomes part of our narrative. And I think one of the most useful ways of thinking about atta, or self, is as um, a project uh, to be realized Rather than a thing or a a state that is somehow already uh, a finished product, me, the sense I have of being this identity, this person who has remained unchanged and unaltered by all the conditions that have impacted my life from the time of my first memories right up until this moment now, as I speak to you. That is a fiction. There is no fixed, unchanging me. But that doesn't mean that I do not exist. I exist, but I exist as a narrative, as a story, as an ongoing and unfolding process which is um, unavoidably descriptive of this individual, this being, this set of kundas rather than your set of kundas or aggregates or... Composite or uh, com- compo- com, uh, elements that compose us. So I've thought of writing an autobiography as a means whereby to uh, help me understand the not self nature of my existence, of who I am, and I feel very much that this book um, is the is the um, The outcome of that wish to articulate my story as a means of uh, uh, perhaps enhancing my own sense of what this is that the person who speaks, who writes these words, and so on. The book is not, however, simply an autobiography. There are autobiography is one strand among several. I think there must be four or five different strands or narrative threads that constitute the book. One is my own story, both as a monk and then as a lay person and as a writer and as a meditation teacher. Another story is my own um, ongoing struggle to understand what Buddhism is all about. In other words, it's an intellectual autobiography. It's a story of my own ideas, my own Uh, confusions, my own attempts to grasp what the Dhamma is trying to tell me, and my own struggle to practice it. That is another narrative. And so there are sections in the book in which I reflect upon Buddhist ideas and Buddhist practices. Another narrative is the narrative of my quest for the historical Buddha himself. And in this sense, I find that um, my life has been one where I've engaged with a number of Buddhist traditions. I started out as a Tibetan Buddhist monk for about seven or eight years. I worked with Tibetan lamas. Um, I learned Tibetan. I translated Tibetan texts. I then moved into the Korean Zen tradition. I lived in a monastery in South Korea for four years. And then I disrobed and married Martine. Uh, whom I met in the monastery, and we have since lived together as a couple and have worked together teaching, writing, and so on. Unfortunately, she's not here this evening, um, but she would consider that very fortunate. Uh, This is the last place she wants to be, tagging along behind me. So there's also the story of my, um, my quest to find out uh, to try to recover the person of the Buddha himself, who was this man? Now, the way in which that part of the book is written is through the medium of telling um, uh, my the story of my own discovery of the buddha 's world and this started in two thousand and three when I went to India with my friend Alan Hunt-Badina to take photographs of all the sites where the Buddha lived and taught, which were meant to illustrate a book that Alan was then writing about Buddhist pilgrimage in India. I did take hundreds of photographs. They've never appeared in print. I rarely look at them, and partly because it's actually not a particularly photogenic um, set of places, Uh, this largely flat Gangetic plain, which looks identical wherever you are, and most of the places where the Buddha was are now archaeological digs, and what you see are largely brick foundations of monasteries that were not built until about a thousand years after the Buddha. So all the photographs look much the same. But what I did discover, and this came as a revelation to me, was that For the first time, I began to get a sense of his place, his world, uh, where he too lived and breathed in terms of the the physical natural world, the bird songs he would have heard, the trees and the plants that he would have encountered, the smells of the uh, whatever it is that the natural world produces, um, the landscapes, the topography. All of this is completely unchanged from the Buddha's time. But more importantly, in terms of understanding the Buddha in the context of his social and his political uh, realities, for the first time, I gained a sense of his geography, the distances that he would have covered, he and his monks would have covered on foot, considerable distances. This enabled me to have a clear sense for the first time of where Savati, or Shravasti, was, for example, in relation to Rajagaha or Rajgir. Until then, I'd read the suttas, and when the text said the Lord was staying at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove um, and King Ajatasattu of Magadha came to the Buddha, this sort of thing, this uh, this little preamble, I would glaze over um, with disinterest. None of these words meant anything specific to me. Uh, they were just some sort of stage decor. And now for the first time, I began to realize that these were actually physical places, cities. These, pers- these personalities were kings and rulers and soldiers and monks. And the more that one goes into the details of the, the background of these suttas, the more you realize that these figures, these places, are not just thrown in arbitrarily. But actually, they very probably refer to particular points in space and time, to particular events that took place in Indian history. And what is strange is that when you pull all these details out of the mass of suttas and the vinaya within the Pali canon, you actually find they all cohere. Even minor characters are portrayed in a consistent way. That these these places and people um, are are actually probably real people and real places. I know that might sound a little bit self-evident, but it had never really struck me before. And for the first time I found I was reading the suttas and recognizing that these dialogues were occurring in specific human situations. And this was, I think, crucial in my coming to gain a clearer sense of the Buddha's own humanity. And this is a rather important thread that runs particularly through the second part of the book. In addition, my research into the Buddha's life, also has run parallel to my research into the Pali Canon um, to try to discover, to try to get a better idea of what it is in those teachings that is distinctive to the man Siddhartha Gautama. In other words, what ideas or teachings are original that are not simply elements which were already in place in ancient India at that time, ideas such as liberation from the cycle of birth and death, ideas such as karma, rebirth. These were already ideas that existed in some form in the pre-Buddhist Vedantic or Upanishadic tradition. And so by putting those kinds of ideas in brackets as something that many teachers of that time, Mahavira and others, would equally have taught, I can... Clear that to one side without saying it's wrong or anything, but enabling one to get a clearer sense of what is truly distinctive in what the Buddha taught. So, that I think is, uh, you know, a summary at least of how this book has evolved, how it has come to be what it is, and I hope that it all hangs together in some kind of coherent way. But that, of course, is for the reader to judge, so let's now just give some examples from the book of what i've been talking about <clears throat> um, i'm going to start by reading a passage that describes my journey to India as a young man. I grew up in uh, just outside london uh, in the county of Hertfordshire, in a town called Watford, which I doubt any of you have heard of, and was part of the sort of rebellious subculture of the 1960s. And as soon as I left high school, or grammar school as we called it in England, um, I worked in, a, in an asbestos factory as a cleaner, which is not funny actually. This might, I might get some karmic kickback from that and um but that enabled me to earn enough money to flee england which i thought of at the time as the primary source of my discontent and i went on the road as it were and inevitably at that period started gravitating eastward i was i was still 18 i was 18 years old when i left england i was 19 by the time i got to india let me read a passage of um Um, I went, you know, as one does. I ended up in in Tehran, in Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, which, of course, are places now that it's probably not advisable to travel. After seeing the giant Buddhas of Bamiyan, I returned to Kabul and continued east into Pakistan. From Peshawar, my traveling companion Gary Zazula. And I rode in a jeep piled high with swaying bodies and backpacks to Chitral, a hill town in the Hindu Kush that was still home to a prince who let us camp in his palace grounds beside the tumultuous river that came down from Mount Tirishmir. From Chitral, we hiked all day until we reached the remote valleys of Kafiristan, a tribal area without roads, electricity, or Islam, whose people were said to be descendants of the Greeks who passed through there with Alexander the Great. But we miscalculated how long it would take and ran out of water in the heat of midday, just as we reached the pass that looked down on the thin green valley of Bumburet, far below, which wiggled through the barren mountains. After we stumbled and slid down Scree to the valley, we were too parched for caution and drank copiously from an irrigation channel. By evening, we were violently ill. There were no doctors, no clinics, no clean water, no sanitation, and hardly any food available in Kafiristan. For days, we lay sweating, feverish in a dark, filthy room, getting weaker by the day. We would emerge from our lair only in the cool of evening and sit beneath a mulberry tree, the eagle eye of a mountain peering down upon us, to watch the girls and young women in the valley link arms and sway together in toning songs while goitered crones crouched along a mud wall glancing at us suspiciously we wondered how on earth we would get out of the place. We lacked the strength to climb back up to the pass. The only alternative was to follow the river downstream to Chitral, but a crucial bridge had been swept away in a recent storm. One morning, a trio of hippies in flowing silks and turbans, their eyes blackened with coal, appeared in the doorway of our room. The local people had told them that the river path was now passable. To give us the energy to walk back, they handed each of us a small purple pill of LSD, <laughs> laced with quite a bit of speed. <clears throat> when, we reached the, when we reached where the bridge should have been, only the stanchions remained on each bank, the river churned and frothed blithely past toward a narrow defile between two perpendicular walls of rock. We grinned foolishly and stumbled around trying to gather our splintered senses as though out of nowhere a wiry man with sunburnished skin dressed in a short woolen smock and rough leather sandals manifested before us. He laughed and beckoned with his staff for us to follow him. He walked straight to the rock face and stared and and started climbing nimbly up a barely visible crevice. We dumbly followed. Halfway up, I paused and looked down at the river far below. Its waters made only a faint hiss now. I looked up and our guide was gone. We were alone, like two flies with red nylon backpacks stranded on a wall. Then the rock to which I was clinging began to feel very rubbery. I found it hard to distinguish my hands and feet from the cliff face. I was fascinated to see how my limbs seemed to be merging with the stone. Then, with a sickening jolt... I knew that I was just about to die. I saw myself peel away from the cliff and slip downward, mouth agape. After what felt like an eternity, our Savior's head reappeared. He climbed down and helped each of us, step by trembling step, to reach the top. Still shaking with fear, we thanked him profusely. He smiled, waved, and trotted off ahead of us. It was shortly after this, as we were walking slowly back to Chitral, that Zazula remarked, It's like the Buddha said, life is suffering. Despite all we had been through, I was troubled. My limited reading about Buddhism had somehow failed to impress this point upon me. I found the remark puzzling and shocking, true but unacceptable. It aroused in me, for the first time, a curiosity to know what this man, the Buddha, had meant. I'm going to run ahead now. Um, so it, it, was, it was after that that I then, uh, from Pakistan, I crossed the border into India in September, I think it was, of 1972. And immediately made my way up to Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama um, and his community of exiled Tibetans were then living. Remember, at that point, they'd only been in exile for about 12 years. It was still a very... Um, fragile community, very, very, very poor, um, and with no real sense of what the future would hold. I think I remember the Tibetans at that time really still felt that this was just some sort of temporary aberration, that it would just be a matter of maybe a year or two, and they would be back in, um, in Tibet. So I'm not going to go into any of that period um, in Dharamsala. And then I moved to Switzerland, where my teacher became the abbot of the Tibetan monastery there. And later he set up a, te- a, a center called Tapa Chuling, where I studied Tibetan Buddhist philosophy, epistemology, logic, and so on and so forth. And it was in this period when I was studying um, Uh, buddhist dialectics we were taught of course to analyse the teachings that we we were being given not simply to take them on trust but as they were subjected to logical analysis I found that much of the logic didn't convince me I found that many of the arguments particularly when it came to the topic of rebirth reincarnation um, were really not convincing. And it struck me then that despite the claim to, for, for Buddhism to be a, a rational religion, one founded upon reasoning, upon uh, scrutiny, in many ways it still remained a religion founded on faith, on trust in the authority of the teachers of the tradition um, whom one really had no real authority to question. In the end, after three or four years in Switzerland, I I was appointed to be a translator for a Tibetan Lama in Hamburg, and uh, this gave me, in a sense, a bit of a breathing space. I was no longer caught up in the struggles of the monastery in Switzerland, both the struggles to just run the place on the one hand and at the same time to pursue my, my training. and. I lived in a place in Hamburg, a, a small Tibetan center called the Tibetische Zentrum, where it was just me and a, a geshe, a lama, uh, and I lived there for a year and a half. I just want to say a little, read a little, little bit about this period, which brings me to the end of my time in the Tibetan tradition. I'm a monk by now, by the way. I arrived at the Tibetisches Centrum, located in the genteel suburb of Blankenesa on the banks of the Elba, on August the 25th, 1979. It was a compromised solution to my dilemma. I only had to translate two evenings a week. Geshe Tupten, the Lama, would tutor me each afternoon in Madhyamaka philosophy, and the rest of the time I could pursue my own studies and meditation. Thus I would continue to serve my teacher Geshe-Rabton while also creating a distance between myself and the monastery in Switzerland. Perhaps Geshe-Rabton hoped that a spell of isolation in a distant German city under the watchful eye of his disciple would cool my rebellious ardor. It didn't. I suddenly had a great deal of free time in which to read more widely than ever, Reflect more critically on what I was doing and start organizing my own ideas. On October the 22nd, I wrote in my journal Just before going to bed last night, the absurdity of mindlessly reciting all these prayers and mantras struck me with its full force. I stopped immediately. Today I haven't said them. I feel no guilt. In spirit, I had stopped reciting them long ago. The last vestige of mechanical vocalization had just dropped off. I don't believe that a horrible hellfire is awaiting me either. I cannot justify the pursuit of a routine that does not assist in the production of more abundant life. Religion is life living itself, not a mechanical repetition of dogmas motivated by threats and fears. End of quote. Thus, I abandoned all the solemn commitments I had made upon receiving tantric initiations over the past seven years. Never again would I visualize myself as the bull-headed Yamantaka or the blood-drinking yogini in their celestial mansions of light. By acting solely on my own conviction, I broke with the authority of Tibetan Buddhist tradition. On December the 12th, I started writing. I've not stopped since. What started out as notes for a course I was invited to give in Holland the following January turned into an essay entitled The Existential Foundations of Buddhism. This was my first attempt to articulate my understanding of Buddhism in the language of modern Western thought. Quote, whenever a religion that is embodied in a culturally and historically alien form attempts to find its footing in a new culture and time, I wrote, it is necessary that its concepts and symbols undergo a radical restructuring in order to attune with the prevailing spirit of the times." End of quote. I sought in this essay to uncover the common ground upon which both Buddhism and existentialism were founded. What, I asked, within the very depths of us moves us to religion? It is because life presents itself as an unresolved question. Existence strikes us as a mystery, as a riddle, this experience reverberates through us, issuing, an ins- issuing in the sounds why and what. The various religions of the world are systematic formulations of the answers to these questions. Sometime in the summer of 1980, my diary entries, my diary entries are sporadic for this period, I told Geshe Rabton of my plans to leave Hamburg at the end of the year and go to a monastery in South Korea to train in Zen. He looked at me sternly and said, That's the view of Hoshang, isn't it? Why, he must have wondered, would I abandon my training with him in order to practice in a school that had been outlawed in Tibet ever since the Indian pundit Kamala Shila had roundly defeated in debate the Chinese Zen teacher Hoshang Mahayana. This debate had taken place in Samya Monastery, south of Lhasa, at the end of the 8th century. But as far as Geshe was concerned, it could have happened a week ago. <laughs> he slowly raised both his forearms, his hands clenched into fists, You and Jampa Kelsang, he said, are like my two arms. Since Jampa Kelsang had already left the monastery some months before, the implication was clear. One arm had already been severed. Was I now going to cut off the other? I stared at the floor in silence. I had no answer to this. In an agony of guilt and remorse, I mumbled something about only staying for a year or so before returning. But I suspect that we both knew that this was not going to happen. Finally, Geshe said, segimare. I'm not saying it's not okay. <laughs> <laughs> so then I went to a monastery in South Korea. And I stayed there for four years, and I loved it. It was, in some respects, uh, the very antithesis of um, of what I had been studying with the Tibetans. It was a a form of meditation practice in which we just asked ourselves the question, "What is this?" A koan. For three months in the summer, three months in the winter, twelve hours a day in a in a in, in a room without windows. Sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking. I loved it. <laughs> Just let me read a little bit about the context of, of, of that uh, monastery. Sometimes, even in the midst of a three-month retreat, the younger Korean monks would exchange their robes for camouflaged fatigues, climb onto the back of a truck and depart for a day of military training. South Korea was, and still is, technically at war with the North. Despite their vow not to kill, Buddhist monks are not exempt from this duty. I met one monk who had bound his trigger finger with surgical gauze, dipped it in oil, set it alight, then offered it as a candle to the Buddha. I knew another who had chopped off all the fingers of his right hand with an axe. But these were exceptions. Most monks accepted their position in the reserve army, which recalled for them, perhaps, the monastic militias raised by Zen master Sosan that played a crucial role in the defeat of the Japanese army that invaded Korea in 1592. When I queried my Korean friend, Strongman, among ourselves, we foreigners gave the Korean monks nicknames because their real ones sounded so similar to us, about the morals of participating in the state killing machine. Can you hear me over this? He looked at me and asked with disbelief, then you would not fight for your country? No one had ever challenged my knee-jerk pacifism quite so bluntly before. Even as a child, I had found the thought of killing any living creature, let alone a fellow human being, repugnant. I had always assumed the Buddhists would feel, that, would feel this way too. To be honest, strong man, I said, I would not. He shook his head in amazement, then marched off with his fellow monk soldiers for target practice and combat drill, leaving the unpatriotic nose people, that's what they called us, to stew on their cushions. In the early 1980s, South Korea was beginning to emerge from the catastrophe of 35 years of Japanese colonial occupation, followed shortly afterwards by the devastating civil war with the communist North. The country was ruled by the military dictator, Chun Doo who had seized control in December 1979 during the turmoil that followed the assassination of Park Chung Hee, another military dictator who had ruled since 1961. Park was felled during a cabinet meeting in a volley of bullets fired by the head of the Korean CIA both chon and park were Buddhists in may 1980 one year before i arrived chon had dispatched paratroopers to suppress a popular uprising in kwangju the nearest city to our monastery in which at least 200 civilians were killed the figures are still disputed and 3000 wounded As a Western convert, I saw Buddhism as a set of philosophical doctrines, ethical precepts, and meditation practices. For me, to be a Buddhist simply meant to accord one's life with the core values of the tradition. Wisdom, compassion, non-violence, tolerance, calm, and so on. Living in Korea made me realize how naive I was. By my narrow criteria, a military dictator who violently suppressed a popular uprising could not possibly be a Buddhist. But why not? Is Buddhism reserved only for the morally upright and doctrinally correct, who piously sit in meditation every day? I began to see it as a broad, cultural and religious identity, one that provides a framework for fallible humans to make complex decisions in a precarious and unpredictable world. In 1988, as a public gesture of repentance for the worst excesses of his regime, Chonduan went into a two-year retreat at Bek a monastery in Gangwon province. While this does not absolve him for the crimes he committed, it shows how he drew on the resources of his religion to help him come to terms with the suffering he had caused. Um, I'm going to read a section now which comes from a a later part of the book. Um, I was very surprised, actually. I'm staying with some friends uptown, and there was a copy of the magazine Buddha Dharma lying around. And um, I noticed my name on the front cover, which was rather unusual. Um, I was totally unaware that there was anything of mine in it but <laughs> but um, when I found the when I looked, tried to find out what it was they were saying about me, they had um, selected a passage from this book and cited it and It turns out funnily enough that it's this passage that i 'm going to read now, uh, which i selected to read on the train coming down from Boston this morning. Buddhism has become for me, and I'm now talking as, a, as, as, as me, present tense. Buddhism has become for me a philosophy of action and responsibility. It provides a framework of values, ideas, and practices that nurture my ability to create a path in life, to define myself as a person, to act, to take risks, to imagine things differently, to make art. The more I prize Gautama's teachings free from the matrix of Indian religious thought in which they are entrenched, and the more I come to understand how his own life unfolded in the context of his times, the more I discern a template for living that I can apply at this time in this increasingly secular and globalized world. I am fully aware that the passages to which I am drawn in the canon are those that best fit my own views and biases as a secular westerner. Critics have accused me of cherry-picking Buddhist sources, of extracting only those citations that support my position while either ignoring or explaining away everything else. To this objection, I can only point out that it has ever been thus. (laughs) Each Buddhist school that has emerged in the course of history has done exactly the same. The Chinese Buddhists selected the texts that best fitted their needs as Chinese, just as Tibetan Buddhists chose those that best fitted theirs. If Buddhism is a living tradition for you, one to which you turn for clues as to how to lead your life here and now, rather than for cold, impersonal facts, then how could it be otherwise? In this respect, I confess that what I am doing is not an objective study of Buddhism, but what I can only call theology, albeit theology without theos. Ever since my time as a monk in Switzerland, I have been inspired by the work of liberal Protestant theologians. On first reading a book by Paul Tillich, I think it was The Courage to Be, I felt a powerful affinity with the tone and style of the prose. This, I realized, was the way I too wanted to write. Here was a man who was struggling to resolve the same questions. Here was a man who was struggling to resolve the same kinds of questions in the context of Christianity that I faced in my own attempt to come to terms with Buddhism. I had not turned to Tillich out of any particular interest in Christian ideas. I was interested in his theological method particularly the way he made use of modern philosophy and psychology in order to articulate a fresh and provocative reading of biblical texts. His work was not abstract and speculative, but infused with personal commitment. What he was writing about mattered to him. It was not until I came across the work of Nyanavira Tera. About, there's a whole chapter on Jnana Viratera in this book. He was an English bhikkhu who lived in Sri Lanka in the 50s. It was not until I came across the work of Jnana Viratera that I found a Buddhist voice that achieved an equivalent synthesis of critical rigor and existential passion. In the mid-1990s, I was given a book by the Anglican theologian Don Cupid called The Time Being, I was immediately impressed by the incisive, playful, and intensely personal quality of the writing. I was also astounded to find that Cupid drew unapologetically on Buddhist sources, in particular Nagarjuna and Dogen. As soon as I lear- I soon learned that Cupid was a controversial, if not heretical, figure in the Christian world. In 1980, he had published a book entitled Taking Leave of God, in which he explicitly rejected any idea of God as a metaphysical reality existing outside the realm of human thought and language. Since then, his views have become increasingly radical as he ruthlessly strips away the last remaining consolations of traditional religious belief, I became a keen admirer of his work. I have greater affinity with Don Cupid than with any living Buddhist thinker. Quote, Our old religious and moral traditions, writes Cupid in The Great Questions of Life, 2005, have faded away, and nothing can resuscitate them. That is why a handful of us are not liberal but radical theologians. We say that the new culture is so different from anything that existed in the past that religion has to be completely reinvented. Unfortunately, this new style of religious thinking that we are trying to introduce is so queer and so new that most people have great difficulty in recognizing it as religion at all. Much of what Siddhartha Gautama taught must have struck his contemporaries as equally queer and new. At the age of 80, in the final year of his life, he was denounced to the Vajjian parliament in Vaisali by a former monk called Sunakata, a man who had once served as his attendant. Sunakata declared, The recluse Gautama does not have any superhuman states, any distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones? The recluse Gautama teaches a Dhamma hammered out by reasoning, following his own line of inquiry as it occurs to him, and when he teaches the Dhamma, it leads him when he it leads those who practices it practice it only to the ending of pain. On being told of this criticism, Gautama remarked Sunakata is angry. And his words are spoken out of anger. Thinking to discredit me, he actually praises me. (laughs) And finally, I'd like to read uh, the opening section of the last chapter, which is called A Secular Buddhist. In 1996, I discovered the internet. (laughs) I was working at Sharpham as the director of the newly founded Sharpham College for Buddhist Studies and Contemporary Inquiry, which had just started running a year-long residential program for up to 12 students. One of the students had previously worked in the computer industry and showed me how to use the internet as a research tool Out of curiosity, I typed in the name of my great uncle, Leonard Crask, the black sheep of our family, who had abandoned his wife and a career in medicine to pursue his vocation as an actor and artist in the United States, about whom I knew nothing as a child. The search produced a number of references, most of which were connected to a statue of a fisherman located on the shorefront of the city of Gloucester, Massachusetts. The Man at the Wheel, as it is known, turned out to be Leonard's most famous work of sculpture. Commissioned by the city of Gloucester to commemorate the 300th anniversary of the founding of the city, the bronze statue was unveiled to the public and dedicated on August 23, 1925. It depicts a 10-foot-high fisherman in oilskins, gripping the wheel of his boat as he steers it through a North Atlantic storm. Yet, to my Buddhist eyes, this monument commemorating heroic American individualism showed a man holding an eight spoked wheel of Dhamma. The seeker of cod was transformed into a bodhisattva in search of awakening guiding the boat of his precious human body by means of the Eightfold Path through the treacherous seas of Sangsara. According to the Ellis Island records, Leonard arrived in New York in 1913 at the age of 34. He worked as an actor in Boston's Copley Theatre during the First World War before taking up a career as a sculptor. He lived and worked in Back Bay, Boston, with a summer studio in the artist's colony at Rocky Neck, a few miles up the Cape Ann Peninsula from Gloucester. He was, quote, easily recognized by his prematurely white hair and ruddy complexion, end of quote. He never remarried and appears to have lived alone Judging from the dandyish poses in the photographs of him in the archives of the Cape Ann Historical Association, I wonder if he might have been gay. From the late 1920s, Leonard turned his attention to color photography and was one of the first non-commercial photographers to work with color film. He died in Boston in 1950, two and a half years before I was born. Money doesn't mean very much to me, he was quoted as saying in his obituary in the Boston Herald. I do whatever I please, so I suppose I run counter to most people's patterns for a proper design for living. Personally, I think that most people are eccentrics, and I'm not. People follow the herd. I don't. Never have. Never will. Like my great-uncle Leonard, I am one of those people who has to make things. I become restless and irritable if I'm not actively involved in manufacturing something. Since 1995, I have been producing collages made from discarded materials, paper, cloth, plastic, that I find dropped on the street, blown into hedgerows, tossed into waste baskets and dumpsters following strict formal rules I cut up these these useless unwanted things with a scalpel and reassemble them as intricate symmetrical mosaics I have no idea why I do this I have neither an aesthetic theory to prove nor any need for a product to sell I am free to follow the silent intuitions that move me. I may spend months finding the right materials and organizing them into a collage. It is intensely satisfying to transform these scraps of waste into a composition that transcends each little piece but could not exist without every one of them. I write books in this way too. Each book is a collage. Jackdaw-like, I pick and choose ideas, phrases, images, and vignettes that for some reason appeal to me. I am as likely to find them in a fragment of overheard conversation as in a Buddhist scripture. I do not work methodically. I sometimes discover what I am looking for by dreamily opening a book at random and stumbling across a sentence that jumps off the page as the answer to a question. Because I do not make systematic notes, I spend hours trying to retrieve a reference I have lost. <laughs> then I need to assemble all these little bits and pieces into tidily organized chapters, and I have to sustain the illusion of a self-assured narrator who has known from the outset what he wants to say and how he is going to say it. I experience the same tension between formal rules and arbitrary content as in making a collage. The cat is out of the bag. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to read anymore. Um, the... Um, Time, I think, for any questions or comments. Um, We have about 45 minutes, strictly speaking. Uh, Joseph? Do we need to be out of here at 9? We don't need to be, okay. Okay. All right, so let's have... um, Let's have a. If there's any comments or questions, I'd be happy to respond. Uh, we can do that for 15 minutes or so, and then, and then I suggest that we enjoy ourselves with the refreshments. And I'm also willing to sign books, and books will be on sale. Yes, ones that come from somewhere else. Um, it all boils down. Hang on, I think I actually say this, and then I'll just read out the text. Okay, I'll just read my read the answer to you. <laughs> this is in the page two hundred and thirty seven. What is it in Gautama's teachings that are distinctively his own? There are four core elements of the Dhamma that cannot be derived from the Indian culture of his time. These are one the principle of Idapachayata Patiya Samupada, which translates as this. Conditionality, Conditioned Arising. It's one. Two, the process of the four noble truths. Three, the practice of mindful awareness. Four, the power of self-reliance. Four Ps. So, Conditionality, the four truths, Mindful Awareness, and Self-Reliance. I would say they are the four things that we do not find in the Upanishads, for, for, for example. Of course, the problem is, we don't actually know everything that was in the world of the Buddha's time, what people were talking about. We can only draw this conclusion on the basis of those uh, teachings and texts that have come down to us today. But on the basis of that, I feel that this would be a, for me at least, um, An answer to that question. Yes. Well, again, these four, basically. I mean, I well, particularly um, the four noble truths. Uh, But and and I get into this in the book quite a lot. There's a whole chapter on the four noble truths. And in fact, the next book I want to write is a a book-length commentary on the first sermon which, of course, treats the four noble truths. And I understand the four truths not as four sort of propositions or truth claims, but rather as four um, injunctions to act, as four tasks. This is for me, after all of these years of studying Buddhism, I think I'm beginning to understand what the Buddha was saying. I'm, I'm not being humble here. Um, It seems to me that the core of his teaching lies in in the four truths as four tasks. And these four tasks are to fully know dukkha, dukkha parinya, to let go of craving, to experience the stopping of craving, and to create and cultivate a way of life, in other words, the Eightfold Path. Uh, And these four tasks follow one from the other. It's a description of a process of action. And that is what constitutes the Buddha's awakening, the Buddha's enlightenment. As is quite explicitly stated in the conclusion of the first sermon, where the Buddha says, it was not until my knowledge and vision of these four truths in their 12 aspects that I could consider myself to have attained a peerless awakening in this world. So his awakening was an awakening to a sequence of tasks that he had recognized, performed, and accomplished. And that, for me, is the primary template of Buddhist practice. All Buddhist practice, I feel, can be um, uh, contained within that uh, structure, that processual dynamic structure of the four truths as four tasks. Yes. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, I, 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 just to give... I, I think all, all Buddhist traditions, if you, look at, if you look at Buddhism historically, what happens each time the Dhamma goes outside of a culture in which it's somehow embedded already, let's say India, and goes to China, and then from China goes to Japan and from India it goes to Tibet. Each time you get this transition of a set of ideas and practices that find themselves in a totally novel environment, then a similar process occurs. In other words, the Dharma has to now speak to the needs of Chinese or Japanese or Tibetans. And it's in that Ausananda in that dialogue, in that interaction, that new forms of the Dharma emerge. And this is achieved not only by intellectual inquiry, what does this Buddhism mean, but also through putting these practices into action by doing them, by embracing the ethical and the moral values of the tradition, by understanding some of the key philosophical ideas, but basically making them into part of your life, your life as a Chinese of the 8th century, your life as a Tibetan as a, in the 13th century. It's through that interaction that different the, 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 the Buddhism renews itself, or we could perhaps even say reinvents itself. In terms of a form of Buddhism that emerges very much in terms of critical inquiry, then I think the best example of that is the, is the Sautrantika movement within... Indian Buddhism of around the 4th, 5th century B, uh, CE, uh, particularly through the work of Dharmakirti, there you get a very radical rethinking of what Buddhism is about uh, in a very radical way. And Nagarjuna would be another example. So yes, definitely. But of course, each historical situation will be different. Nothing, it's not a question of repeating what the Tibetans or the Chinese did, It's rather going to... Something will happen in our culture which we cannot foresee, we cannot predict. All we can do is try and do it. The rest really is not our business. Yes? What is my analysis of why Buddhism faded in India? I think there are two primary reasons. One is that Buddhism, particularly in its Mahayana forms, became increasingly indistinguishable from the uh, Vedantic uh, tradition, particularly through the work of a man called Shankaracharya. Shankaracharya was a a very brilliant um, uh, Brahmanic thinker. I think he lived in about the 7th, 8th century AD and initiated what is called the Brahmanic Revival. And Shankara actually borrowed ideas from Nagarjuna and some of the other Buddhist philosophers and used that as a means to give a new interpretation to the Upanishads, to Vedanta, which is usually called Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta. At the same time, you have the Tantric movement in Buddhism and Hinduism um, in which Buddhists practice, particularly of its devotional Aspect and also of its meditational aspect becomes increasingly difficult to differentiate from, from Hindu practice. I mean, a good example of this is go to Kathmandu and try and tell me which is the Buddhist temple and which is the Hindu temple. Even if you're an expert, it's very difficult. In other words, Buddhism and Hinduism were becoming, Buddhism was losing its distinctiveness. It was becoming a tradition which was again putting much emphasis on devotion to the guru rather than self reliance. It was becoming more devotional and its philosophy was becoming much more Vedanta-like in its emphasis on the ultimate nature of mind. All of those kinds of teachings are are closer in a way to the teachings of Vedanta than they are to what you find in the Pali Canon. That was one reason. The other reason was the invasion of India by the Muslim armies. Um, That, of course, dealt a body blow, not only to Buddhism, but also to all forms of what the Muslims considered to be idol worship. But Buddhism, I think, was was by that time sufficiently weakened to uh, be able to restore itself. Uh, whereas the Hindus and the Jains, interestingly, were able to survive that and to continue to flourish, um, and Islam became part of Indian culture um, with those other Indian traditions. But Buddhism fades out from India pretty much in the wake of the Muslim invasions from about the 10th to 12th centuries. Now, that would be my take on that. But this is still a topic that is much debated and discussed. In India, now, yes. Um, this is what I think is one of the most exciting things that's happening in India at the moment, and I recently spent a couple of months there. There's ma- there's millions of Buddhists who have converted in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. These are the Dalits, uh, the former untouchables. In order to get out of the Indian caste system, they converted to Buddhism under the influence of a man called Bimra Ambedkar, who was the first minister of justice in Nehru's government, who converted to Buddhism in 1956. He was a former untouchable. And uh, half a million of his people converted with him. And now the untouchable movement that Ambedkar launched is getting to the point of possibly gaining national political power under the leadership of this woman called Mayawati, now, when you travel in India today, you see more statues of Ambedkar than you do of Gandhi. You, you can always, Ambedkar is dressed in a suit. He's got the Indian constitution under one arm, and he's doing that with his other <laughs> arm. And you see these statues everywhere in India. And so the, the Dalits... Uh, but the thing is, Buddhism for the Dalits is purely a social and political movement. Um, it's nothing like the Buddhism we do here. They don't meditate. They don't study. There's not really any monks for for them. Buddhism is a social and political identity, and it has been the, it is that identity that has helped forge this mass movement in India, where now, um, you know, they, they are on the verge of becoming a, uh, you know, part of, or if not actually the government. Government. There are many states in India now that are governed by Buddhists, by the Dalit buddhist but at the same time there's also a lot of interest in buddhism amongst the emerging indian middle classes who are effectively disillusioned with what they consider to be the rather superstitious and devotional aspects of hinduism and are now seriously reconsidering uh, taking up buddhism and this is going on mainly in the cities and in fact the uh one, 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 one of the most um, uh, prominent figures in this particular community is uh, 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 Priyanka Gandhi, the daughter of Rajiv and uh, Sonia Gandhi. Uh, she is uh, studying Buddhism, she's practicing Buddhism, uh, and also Rah- Rahul Gandhi, who's her, his, her brother. Uh, both of them are very seriously involved in Buddhism. They don't make, this is not made public very much, but they are examples, really, of this new emergent westernized middle class that are looking for a spirituality that is Indian, but is somehow got a kind of secular modern edge to it. And many of them are looking to the kinds of things that are going on in America in in England. In fact, I met with a fellow in Bombay... Um, Mr. Malkani, who's a retired businessman who wants to fund the creation of Vipassana centres in Indian cities, developed along the lines that these centres run in the West, um, and in order to bring Buddhism back into India through um, English-speaking middle-class Indians. <laughs> that's, that's really quite it's amazing, actually. It's very, very interesting. This very interesting. Yes. Oh yes I do. But you do use the expression uh therapeutic existential agnosticism. Ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's in the other book. That that's in Buddhism without beliefs, isn't it? Belief. I, I feel like the word agnostic would come up more than super- Well it does in Buddhism without beliefs, because that's when I, that, that was my agnostic book. <laughs> but if you read um, if you read chapter fourteen called An Ironic Atheist There I embrace quite explicitly the idea of atheism and um, also uh, cite many passages from the Pali Canon where the Buddha himself makes a very explicit atheist stand. But atheism is not a big deal in this book, really. I'm not a militant atheist uh, at all. Um, I could have read out a... But read chapter 14, particularly page 179 Um, so the Buddha's approach is in contrast to the aggressive atheism that periodically erupts in the modern west advocates of such atheism are outraged that educated and intelligent people still persist in holding what to them are patently false and scarily dangerous ideas their position is premised on a denial of God every bit as fervent as the believer's affirmation of him. It would be more correct to call this anti-theism. Then atheism would be free to recover its original meaning of simply not-theism. Gautama was not a theist, but he was not an anti-theist. God is simply not part of his vocabulary. He was an atheist in the literal sense of the term. So that's that's this is the only passage in which I even mention the word atheism. Yes? Yes? Um, something seems a little paradoxical to me in, in what you're saying tonight um, in your remarks and on your readings. Uh, you say on the one hand that Buddhism has changed when it moves into another culture. Uh, you, on the other hand, what you find compelling, as if, if I understand, mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. So that's the Buddha without the cultural inconsistency. Uh. And that's what's compelling for you. Yeah. So that would seem to be what's the enduring, meaningful part. And the other <coughs> stuff is fluff. So part is true. Well, wait a minute. I, I'm not using I wouldn't say it's fluff. Okay. No, I think I get your point. Um, I think, in, in some ways, what I think I'm, I'm trying to do is to reimagine Buddhism from the ground up. In other words, um, I guess part of what my book describes is my own essentially deconstructing of Buddhism and trying to deconstruct it in terms of recovering what seem to be the kind of uh, non negotiable principles see, I think if if you're going to call yourself a Buddhist, uh, I don't think you just tack that label onto yourself because it it sounds nice or it feels nice. I think you have to be able to answer the question, but who is this person, the Buddha? What was it that he taught? Now, the way we will answer that question today is going to be quite different to how it would have been answered, say, by a Tibetan in the 11th century. We're going to apply what... uh, we call historical critical scholarship. Historical critical scholarship is a uniquely Western way of looking at things. It's a product of the European Enlightenment. Buddhism has not um, really manifested historical critical scholarship in its past. And so I think this kind of approach that I'm suggesting is one that is utilizing distinctively modern or Western uh, critical tools uh, to get down to these, what I consider to be the core ideas. Now, um, what is curious, I find, is that in in many forms of Buddhism that have emerged over the last two and a half thousand years, uh, there's been a kind of forgetting of some of these principles. And what I find striking about the Buddha um, is that he does come across to me as someone who is kind of a a, a modern... Uh, What I find strange when I read the Pali texts, and maybe others of you have this experience too, is that you find that these texts, which were recorded maybe 2,500 years ago, in certain passages at least, they seem to be speaking directly to our condition. Now, I suspect most Buddhists throughout history in different times and places have likewise resonated with particular passages, particular teachings, particular ideas that speak to their condition. So all I can describe, and again, I'm not suggesting I'm trying to do an objective scientific-like analysis. I'm trying to uh, make sense. I'm trying to reach those passages, those ideas that speak to my condition as a modern Westerner. And this is the way I'm doing it. I'm not suggesting that it's the only way this can be done or that you or others should do it. All I can describe is my own process. So yes, there is a paradoxical sense in that at one level, I could be accused now of being a fundamentalist. And I think that's... I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm trying to find, find what I consider to be foundational or fundamental. And in identifying these core principles or values to then be able to, in a sense, reconstruct on the basis of those, of, of those axioms uh, a language, uh, a theory, a vision, a practice, a form of Dhamma that uh, seems to be both rooted in the tradition that strikes me as the most authentic, but at the same time, is one that addresses and speaks to the needs of contemporary people such as myself. But yes, there is a paradox there, I agree. and I think that paradox has probably always been there. There's it a tension between, on the one hand, having faith and trust in, uh, in tradition, and at the same time, having, uh, being driven by the imperatives... Uh, of our own needs and our own, um, you know, our own needs uh, here and now, how does that tradition respond and relate to the needs that we feel in early 21st century, America or Europe? One last question, then we 're going to have to stop.: Yes. No, no 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 thank you very much. Now I understand that. Um I sympathize enormously with what you feel. And I think I describe in in my book basically the my own emotional struggle. On the one hand seeking something which I consider to be true to be somehow have a a deeper more lasting value than just my my transient uh, attachments and desires and fascinations, and yet at the same time um, not giving away my own authority, not surrendering my own autonomy and giving myself over to something uncritically. And it's it's, it's a very difficult sort of balancing act, and one swings back and forth. That's been my experience. Uh, from a sort of, sometimes a deeply uncomfortable anxiety and doubt that what one is doing is legitimate, period, or has any real value to it. And at other times, a kind of relationship to the tradition which is almost a complete uncritical trust in it. And I think both are necessary. And I think our practice is forged out of the tension between these two things. So hopefully, if you are interested in reading this thing, you will get one account of someone who I suspect has been through something very similar to what you're trying to describe. Thank you. Um, Okay, I'm going to stop here. I mean, I'm going to be around for the next half an hour or so or more. Um, The books are available, and New York Insight is very, very generously selling them at a discounted rate of 20 US dollars. The bookstores will sell them to you for twenty six plus tax. Um, I'm going to be sitting at a table at the back and um, I'll sign copies if you wish and otherwise there is uh, refreshments, nibbles, water, and please enjoy each other's company. Thank you.